Well, happy Easter. You know, Easter is the supreme expression of God's love for us. In fact, if you paid attention even to our media these last few days, even they recognize that for those of us that name the name of Jesus Christ, we're Christians, this is the very pinnacle of celebration for Christians. At the very moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, God's wrath was fully satisfied. <laughs> and that's what's good news for us today. That's why we say, Happy Easter. That's why Friday, by the way, was good, even though we remember Jesus' crucifixion on Friday. Without the shedding of blood, there would be no remission for sins. But because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, God's wrath was fully satisfied, fully. And then three days later, he rose victorious in his resurrection, and that is why we're here today. The Apostle Paul made it very clear to the church at Corinth, in fact, that were it not for the resurrection, if there is no resurrection, we are, those of us that name the name of Jesus Christ, we are to be pitied because there is no hope. But I say to you this morning, there is hope because we serve a resurrected Jesus. And that is why we gather here today. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And I'm glad you're here. Hey, there are some of you, by the way, that you clean up very, very nicely. I'm looking at some of these high school guys going, who the heck are you? I mean, I, where'd you get those pants and where'd you get that shirt? And I had one adult guy tell me that just as soon as I say amen, he's taking everything off. So I'm just telling you, you need to leave quickly, all right? You need to get out of here at the end. You know, I remember as a kid, Easter Sunday and, and getting dressed up for Easter Sunday, my daughter asked me last night, what are you wearing? And I'm going, I don't know. It's not time to get dressed yet. I mean, I don't think about what I'm going to wear, right? I remember when I was about 13 years old, and this is sad to admit, that my mom actually bought me a peach velvet leisure suit. <laughs> and were it not for the fact that I was about 100 pounds lighter then, and I, if I had it, I would have worn it for you today. Aren't you glad that I'm 100 pounds heavier? This is when it's good. Yes, amen. That's a, that's a good thing. But it's really great to have you here and for the reason in which we celebrate this Easter Sunday morning. Some of you may have read the story several weeks ago about the Mississippi man who was taken to the funeral home and later discovered to be very much alive. Did you read that story? Holmes County, Mississippi, that says it all, coroner David Dexter Howard received a call from a hospice nurse telling him that 78-year-old Walter Williams had passed away. Pretty common thing for him to receive that call. Howard and Byron Porter from Porter and Sons Funeral Home in Lexington, Mississippi, drove to Williams' home to collect the body for funeral preparations. Howard checked Williams' pulse about 9 p.m. and he pronounced him dead. There was no pulse, Howard said. He was lifeless. The coroner completed his paperwork, placed Williams in a body bag, and transported him to the funeral home. There, something strange happened. The body bag began to move. Now, I'm telling you, if you ever had any thoughts about whether or not you should be a mortician, that would be enough for me. Just the possibility that that could happen would be enough for me to say, no, thank you, I'll do something else, anything else, I don't want to do that. Howard said, we got him into the embalming room and we noticed his legs beginning to move, like kicking, he said. He also began to do a little breathing. Now, I found that very funny in the article. He began to do a little breathing, 
Like, I guess you can do a lot of breathing and a little breathing, but I'm submitting to you that if you're supposed to be dead to the point where they're putting embalming fluid into your body, you shouldn't be doing any breathing at that particular moment. Can you imagine how scary that moment must have been? He said, we immediately called an ambulance. Paramedics arrived, hooked Williams up to a machine, and sure enough, he had a heartbeat. So they transported him to the Holmes County Hospital and Clinics. They were in shock. I was in shock. I think everybody at the hospital was in shock, Howard said. He said the only reasonable explanation he could think of is that William's defibrillator, implanted beneath the skin in his chest, jump-started his heart after he was placed in the body bag. It could have kicked in, started his heart back. They think these things in Mississippi, right? That's where my grandparents are from. They, they think these things there. He said the bottom line is it's a miracle. Now, I'm just telling you, if you hear that I've died, tell them to check everything. I mean, the very last thing that I want to do is to be zipped up in a body bag when I'm still alive. If I indeed am dead, I have no problem. I'm with Jesus. I'm totally good with that. But do not put me in the bag and zip me up if I'm not dead. His daughter, Martha Lewis, told a CNN affiliate, she said, so it was not my daddy's time. I don't know how much longer he's going to grace us and bless us with his presence, but hallelujah, we thank him right now. Nephew Eddie Hester said he was at Williams' Lexington home when Howard and Porter zipped him up in the body bag, so he was a little more than stunned when his cousin called at 2.30 a.m. Thursday and told him, Daddy's still here. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, it's great, right? I mean, I checked the obituary for this particular funeral home yesterday just to make sure he hadn't died. He's still alive. This is awesome. He said, I don't know how long he's going to be here, but I know he's back right now, and that's all that matters. Here's one thing that I do know this Easter Sunday morning, that unless Jesus comes back first, Mr. Williams, myself, you, we are all one day going to die. And we will most likely not come back to life when they get us to the funeral home while we're waiting to be embalmed. In fact, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and verse 27 says this, It's appointed unto a man once to die, and then after that comes the judgment. Because you see, we are eternal beings. You understand that, right? We will live someplace forever. We will either live in heaven with Jesus forever, or we will be eternally separated from Jesus forever. But we are eternal beings, and we will live someplace forever. And what you decide about Jesus while you're alive will ultimately determine where you spend eternity after you die. Well, go back with me on a Friday morning about 2,000 years ago. There were two criminals. You just saw them. They weren't these two particular guys. But they were hanging on either side of Jesus, and they determined that day, both of them, each coming, by the way, to different conclusions, who Jesus was. And that decision that they made that day determined their eternal destiny. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 23. Go down to verse 39. We're only going to look at four verses this morning. But I want to look at what Dr. Luke records for us that no other gospel does, and that is the exchange of the second thief and the conversation that he has with Jesus while hanging there on that cross. You, let me set the stage for you. It's Friday in Jerusalem, and there's a huge crowd that is gathered around the place they called Skull Hill. 
It's on the north side of the city, just outside the Damascus Gate, and it's located by the side of a very well-traveled road. The Romans liked to do these crucifixions in very public places. It, it had an effect on others who would commit crimes. Killing people in public had a controlling effect also on the masses and, and their behavior. This particular crucifixion, uh, Scripture tells us and historians tell us, started at about 9 a.m. And for three hours, everything proceeded normally. The Romans, this was not new to them. They, they crucified people on a regular basis. In fact, they had perfected the art of crucifixion for the worst of the criminals amongst them. Everything's going along perfectly fine, and then at exactly 12 noon, the sky goes black. It's not, it's not one of those overcast days. It's 12 noon, and yet it goes pitch black. In fact, in fact, historical accounts tell us that it's so black that if you were to put your hand up in front of your face, you couldn't see your hand. It's that dark. And for three hours, darkness falls across the city of Jerusalem. And then just as suddenly as it started, the darkness lifts, it disappears, it vanishes, and sanity returns to the earth for a few moments. One glance at that middle cross that Jesus would hang on, and, and you could tell that he wasn't going to last much longer. In fact, he looked dead already. His body quivered uncontrollably and his chest you can imagine was heaving as he would lift himself up trying to take breaths so he could maintain life in his body in his broken body the soldiers knew from their experiences that it wouldn't be much longer and he would indeed die the crowds and the soldiers in fact all the gospel accounts tell us that they had mocked Jesus all the way through the ordeal as he walked up on that Via Del Rosa road. As he was walking, they mocked him, and the mocking did not stop when those Roman soldiers nailed him to a cross. The crowds were mocking, and the thieves were mocking as well. Those two thieves hanging, if you can imagine, with Jesus, the very Son of God, the Savior of the world, that one who would die for the sins that they had committed hanging on either side of him. They were suffering for crimes they had committed, and yet ultimately Jesus was suffering for their sins. They both had responses to Jesus that day, ultimately very different responses. Look at verse 39 of Luke chapter 23. The text says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's really, when you think about it, it's not really a, a, a surprising rant or a question for a desperate man who's in agony and hanging on a cross, paying what would be the ultimate price in that culture for his crimes. In fact, our world today in 2014 is still full of people who rail against God in their self-righteousness and presume that the creator of the universe is, is somehow obliged to make life smooth. Both of these criminals had access to Jesus. In fact, not only did they have access to Jesus, but they had the ability to be able to read the inscription which was above his cross, which read, this is the king of the Jews, nailed there as the ultimate form of mockery. Both had access to the same Jesus, but they had very different responses. In fact, if you read the gospel accounts, there is this eerie silence towards this thief who is ranting and, and raving and mocking at Jesus. I've said often that I'm glad 
that I'm not God and you should be as well. If I were Jesus and I were hanging there on the cross, I may die for the sins of the world, although I think I probably wouldn't. I probably would have had some other plan, some other way. But if there was a thief who was hanging there for his sin, for his crime, and as I'm hanging there innocently, and he's, as he starts to mock me and taunt me, what would I do if I'm Jesus? If I am the Son of God, I'd have some things to say to him. If not some things to say to him, some things to do to him. I'd probably make his life very, very short. I'd probably just strike him dead at that particular moment. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus hangs there in utter silence, according to the gospel records that we have. He hangs there in utter silence, and not a word is recorded in any of the gospels that Jesus says to that particular mocking thief. Perhaps if you can imagine with me, Jesus looks over at him and he gives him a pitiful glance But there's certainly no promise of what will happen after death. There is no hope for that man at that moment. The first thief simply says something like this, do something for me. If you are who you say you are, and it is to me the ultimate picture of a spiritually destitute man or woman. He's totally indifferent to the fact that he's suffering on the cross because of crimes that he has committed. And I would submit to you that for most of us that are in this room this morning, we have somehow convinced ourselves that we are really not that bad, that ultimately we really are basically good people and we deserve something better, something more. To this particular thief and to many of us, Right and wrong, good and bad, are of little interest. They're interested in Jesus simply helping them. He simply at that moment wants to be taken out of this hellish situation and he he wants to have Jesus somehow save him from the circumstances that he finds himself in at that particular moment. That is unfortunately the way that a large segment of the population relates to God. Bad circumstances interrupt our private, worldly goals and pleasures, and they reason, why not try God? When something desperate happens, when, when bad things happen, why not just at least try to cry out to God? And if there is a God, somehow he'll be like a genie in a bottle, and somehow he'll come down and he'll save me from this particular moment. They don't want a Savior from their sin. They want a Savior from their momentary suffering. It's an attitude that says, if you're king then get me out of this mess right now. John Piper says it this way. He calls it carjack theology. All right, let me explain. A carjack is a relatively useless thing to be kept out of sight in the trunk until you have a flat tire. You ever had a flat tire and gone to look for the jack and the jack's not there? Have you ever done that? You'd had a flat tire before, you didn't put it all back together and you took it out then and left it in the garage rather than putting it all back because it's almost impossible to get back the way that's supposed to be. You realize that, right? Car manufacturers do that. They make it to be used only one time. Then you recognize at that particular moment when it's not there how important it is. John Piper says, a car jack is a dirty, useless thing to be kept out of sight in the trunk until you have a flat tire. Then you get it out, let it do the dirty work, and you put it away again. That's carjack theology. If you're such a good jack, jack me down off this cross, Jesus. 
If you're such a good jack, jack me up out of this sickness, out of this financial mess that I'm in, out of this lousy job. Somehow fix this marriage that I'm in that I find myself tied to. That's carjack theology. You're useless until I need you for my purposes at my particular moment. The first thief, he has no spirit of brokenness, no guilt, no humility. He only sees Jesus as a possible escape from the agonizing death that he's experiencing on a Roman cross. It never entered into his mind that Jesus might indeed be who he said he is. And if he is who he said he is, then I've got a responsibility towards him. In fact, he is dying literally for my sins. That never enters into this first thief's mind. While being tortured on the cross, he literally joins in with the others that are, that are mocking Jesus at that moment. Most speculate that he did so because he wanted them to think that he was just like them, that he had no love, no regard for this so-called savior of mankind. And his pride kept him from submitting to the only one who could save him. I would say to you this morning that that is what keeps many people from submitting themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, toward trusting in Christ alone as their savior. It is something that we refer to as pride. And yet Jesus is the only one that can save us. Matthew and Mark both report that both criminals at one point were mocking Jesus, but as the hours wore on, evidently for the second thief, he comes to the point where he begins to stop mocking. Something begins to happen. It is as if he begins to recognize some commentary, some theologians speculate it's because of the testimony of Jesus Christ at that particular moment that he becomes convinced that indeed this is the Son of God. Look at verse 40. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? The second thief says to the first. Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation, And we're here, verse 31, we're here justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. At this particular moment, the second thief acknowledges that Jesus is the perfect son of God who was suffering the same punishment as both of them were, but he had done nothing wrong. He accepted the fact that he was a sinner, that Jesus was the righteous son of God, and now he pleads to him for salvation. The difference is, it is not simply salvation from this earthly suffering. It is salvation from eternal damnation. Notice the request he makes to Jesus in verse 42. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The penitent thief, his prayer reflects his belief that the soul lives on long after death, that Christ has a rightful rule over the souls of men and that he would soon enter into the kingdom despite his impending death. And his request was a a plea for mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He also understood that the only way to receive grace is not through any good works. If you ever wondered about whether or not good works can save you, the second thief on the cross ought to be a great recognition of the fact that it is grace alone. Is there any doubt, Northwest, after spending months in Galatians? It is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that gives us salvation. And boy, was that second thief thankful for that, that day on the cross, was he not? Those of you that have somehow bought into the idea of the 
false unbiblical theology of baptismal regeneration, that it is somehow your baptism that saves you. The thief on the cross represents it is not baptism that saves you. There was no way for that penitent thief to be baptized at that particular moment. All of these actions at that particular moment demonstrate that he has true faith. And Christ graciously affirmed the man's salvation. Look at verse 43. He said to him, Truly I say to you, what great words to hear as you're a thief hanging on a cross, dying for the crimes that you've committed. Truly I say to you, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus, in effect, says this, your eternal destination changes right now. You do recognize that that is what happens at salvation. Some of you have known Jesus just long enough that you've lost some of that joy of your salvation that came when you recognized that without Jesus Christ, you were desperate, you were hopeless, you were helpless. And the longer I'm afraid that we have known Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, those of us that do, we lose that joy of our salvation, that incredible realization that comes that when, when we trust in Christ alone as our Savior, our eternal destination changes. As I said earlier, we are eternal beings. We will live someplace forever. We will either live eternally with Jesus in heaven or we will be apart from him in hell, but we will live someplace forever. Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Your eternal destination is changing right now. His faith in Jesus and the sacrifice, think about how remarkable it is. You know, he's like the first convert at the crucifixion. He's hanging there. He's dying for his sins, and yet the Savior of the world who's dying right alongside of him says, I am shedding my innocent blood for you. That's pretty awesome. And today, you're going to be with me in paradise. What is paradise? You've heard of the cheeseburger in paradise? Most cheeseburgers I've had, man, when I eat one, I am in paradise. But there is something that is even so much greater than that. The word is found two other places in the New Testament. One is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. All I know is that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the, in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things which cannot be told, which man cannot utter. So we conclude that paradise is the heavenly abode of God where there are things that are being prepared by God for those who love him, which are, according to Paul and his letter to the Corinthians, they are indescribable. Now, if you've read much of the Apostle Paul and what he's written in the New Testament, you know he has a great way with words. So the very fact that he says heaven is indescribable makes it pretty incredible. When the end comes... We all want to spend eternity in one place, and that is heaven. I have, in my 48 years of life, 25-plus years of ministry, I've only met a few people who told me they wanted to go someplace differently. Usually it was a rebellious high school kid when I was a youth pastor who, as I'm sharing with him the gospel, and I say, you want to go to heaven, right? He goes, actually not. I kind of want to go to hell and party in hell. Obviously didn't have a good understanding of heaven or hell, as if hell is going to be this ultimate, you know, party. 
Most of us decide we want to go to heaven. We, we say that. Some have incorrectly concluded that human beings are not eternal and that we just simply cease to exist. We, we know this theologically as annihilationism, where when you, when you die, you just simply go back to the earth. You just cease to exist. You, 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 don't, you don't abide any place ever for eternally. You're just, you're just gone. There's no reincarnation. There's no nothing. You are just simply gone. Now, that's poor theology. We don't see that in Scripture. We, we see that we're eternal beings in Scripture. And so most of us, when we die, we want to go where? Yeah, four of you do. That's great. That's awesome. That's great. We want to go where when we die? We want to go to heaven. In fact, there is such a fascination with heaven in our culture right now. Most recently, the book entitled Heaven is for Real has sold 7 million copies. And now there's a movie that is uh, in movie theaters, and it has fueled the country's intrigue with this place that we call heaven. Heaven is for Real is by Todd Burpo, who tells the story of his son Colton, who says he visited heaven while anesthetized for an appendectomy at age four. Colton is now age 13, and he says in heaven he got a halo and he got real wings, parentheses, though they were too small for his liking. Now, I read that this week, and I thought, if, you know, when you get to heaven, if, if this whole wing thing exists and we get wings, which that's just kind of weird to me anyway, right? I mean, I'm not sure, you know, shoulder blades are good enough for me, but I don't really want wings, right? I like the idea of flying around, but I kind of want to be more of a, you know, I, I just don't. But in parentheses, Colton says, they were too small for his liking. I'm going, now that's really a bummer. When you get to heaven, you think, that the God of the universe could give you the right size wings, right? That he knew you were coming, he's the sovereign one, and yet you get there and your wings are too small. He also claims that he sat on Jesus' lap while the angel sang to him. He saw Mary standing beside Jesus' throne, and he met the Holy Spirit, who again, parentheses, according to Colton, is kind of blue. I don't know where that comes from. We don't have any record in the scripture that the Holy Spirit is blue. In fact, he is a Spirit, right? Lynn Vincent, who ghost wrote Heaven is for Real on behalf of the young boy, Colton Burpo, and his father, she said she was initially reluctant to include Colton's description of people in heaven having wings. She said, if I put people in heaven having wings, Orthodox Christians are going to think that the book is a hoax. She put that in the book, and unfortunately, there are Christians all over this country and world that are devouring it as if it were biblical theology. Let me say this to you. Maybe it's a sermon series at another time. Heaven is for real. How do you get there? That's what I kind of thought of this last week. We need to do a series on heaven. Heaven is for real. And it's all great to talk about it and speculate what it might be like. But how do you get there? Right? That's the big question that we ought to be answering in our culture. In an upcoming book dealing with this subject, John MacArthur says this. Scripture definitely says that people don't go to heaven and come back. In fact, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, for those of us that choose to be students of the word, know that God says, who has ascended to heaven and come down, question mark? That question is then answered in the New Testament in John chapter 3, verse 13, where it's written, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And who's that? That's Jesus. All the account of, accounts of heaven in, in Scripture are visions. They're not journeys taken by dead people. 
And even visions of heaven are very, very rare in Scripture. In fact, you remember that Lazarus came forth from the dead after being dead several days, and never do we have anything recorded about what he saw and what he experienced. Paul was caught up into heaven in an experience that was so vivid that he didn't know whether he was there bodily or not, but he saw things that are unlawful to utter, he said, and he gave no details. All three biblical writers who saw heaven and described their visions give comparatively sparse details, but they agree perfectly on what they experienced. They don't agree with Colton Burpo's version of heaven. Both their intonation and the details they highlight are markedly different. The biblical authors, if you go back and you study those places in Scripture, here's what you will find. They are fixated on God's glory, which defines heaven. It's remarkable to me that of all the books, of of all of the movies that are out there, never do we see the radiant glory of Jesus Christ. The biblical accounts are all overwhelmed. They are chagrined, they are petrified, and they're put to silence at the sheer majesty of seeing God's holiness. Notably missing from all of the biblical accounts are the frivolous features and the juvenile attractions that seem to dominate every account of heaven that's currently on the bestseller list. I would say to you on this Easter Sunday morning, let's bank our eternal destiny and the reality of heaven based on what the Word of God says. The Bible is rather clear on what heaven is and how you get there. I believe the lyrics to Thomas Dorsey's spiritual walk all over God's heaven simply state the truth of Scripture, and it goes something like this. I wish I could sing it for you. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. We, we would do well, I think, to contemplate those simple words, that it is not simply enough to talk about heaven. We need to understand how to actually get to heaven. I'm an avid news reader. Any of you out there? I mean, I, I'm a news junkie. I mean, I don't know if I'd, if I'd lived 50 years ago without the 24-hour news cycle, I don't know what I would do. I just, I just, I just want to know what's going on, you know, what's happening. And so I'm always reading and, and, and hearing about things that are just odd, just different. And, and this week on CNBC, on their website, they posted an interview with the former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg. Maybe some of you saw this. Now that he's out of office, the former mayor is stepping up his efforts to battle the National Rifle Association and expand, his, expand gun control laws. And he's detailing his plans in this particular interview with the New York Times that was published this past Monday in which he predicted his crusades against guns, smoking, and obesity. I'm really glad for what he did in New York City because you can't get one of those big drinks anymore. Like, how stupid is that? That's, that's reason enough for me not to live in New York City because I can't buy a big drink. But we have Mayor Bloomberg to thank for that. He thinks, though, all of those efforts, he said, and I quote, would serve him well in the afterlife. He said this, and I quote word for word. I'm telling you, if there is a God, oh, Mayor Bloomberg, there is a God. He said, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Sobering thing, is it not? The sad truth is, my friends, that if Michael Bloomberg's view of heaven were real, 
And if he leaves this earth and slips out into eternity with that view of heaven and God, he will be eternally disappointed. See, there's normally not a lot of question about where we want to go when we die. But there is a lot of disagreement on how we get there. This second thief on the cross just simply acknowledged Jesus is my way to salvation. And whatever Jesus says is my way, that's what I will choose to do. And so he acknowledged himself as a sinner. He placed his trust in Jesus alone as his Savior. And Jesus said, today you're going to heaven. We need to know how to get there. Here's the problem. You and I have a debt that we can't possibly pay on our own. I've got a really big one. And guess what? You do too. Jesus came to this earth to pay our sin debt. In fact, it's very sobering to think for me every Easter to think that that the perfect son of God would suffer and bleed and die and he would hang there as the sovereign one, as the son of God, as, as the savior, the perfect one, that he would, as I've listened to these accounts of this, uh, of this fairy that sank in South Korea this week, and there are, are over 300 people that are presumed dead. And just this morning, I, I read about a teacher who literally gave his life saving students and pulling them out, and he he himself drowned. He literally went down with the ship. And the testimony of students that, have been, that were rescued said that he would not get off the boat and save his own life, that he, that he, went, he continued to, to go after these students to get them out. And then I look at that in contrast to the captain of that boat who was the first one off. And I'm so thankful that the God of the universe said, I'll stay. I will suffer, I will bleed, I will die, I will rescue you, even though it means my own persecution and my own death. That's what Jesus did for us. That's an awesome, awesome thing. doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how bad you are, God loves you and he wants a relationship with you. The famous philosopher and mathematician Pascal once said that we were all created with a God-shaped hole. We try a lot of things to fill that God-shaped hole. We do it as middle school students and as high school students, and certainly we do it in college, and we do it as young adults, and then there are some people that today are laying in beds in nursing homes, and they're still trying to do it. They're still trying to cram stuff in that God-shaped hole. We do it with relationships. We do it with money. We do it with cars. We do it with jobs. We do it with houses, with sports, with hobbies, and yet it is like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. There is nothing that fits in that God-shaped hole except for Jesus. And sadly, too many of us spend our lives looking for something other than God to fill that void, not realizing that it is because of Easter (laughs) that we have the ability to have that hole filled by trusting in Christ alone as our Savior. Let me put it very simply. If Jesus paid it all, then you and I don't have to. If you try to pay for your sins, it means you don't think that he paid for them in full. And there's really no middle ground between those two propositions, is there? You either believe that that his death on that cross and his resurrection was sufficient, or you try on your own to do all kinds of things to fill that God-shaped hole 
But to trust in anything other than the finished work of Christ on the cross is to be eternally disappointed. There's no doubt that there are some here this morning that are trusting in things other than Jesus. And I can't think of a better day out of a calendar year to place your trust in Christ alone than on an Easter Sunday. You know, you can be here on Easter Sunday and you maybe normally don't even attend church. You could be here and you got your Easter clothes on, right? You look like a million bucks. You've had your Reese's peanut butter egg. Love those. You've got the malted milk ball eggs. That's the ones for me, right? If they made a mega stuffed Oreo with malted milk ball filling, be awesome. You can have all of those things on Easter Sunday morning, and yet, if you have not placed your trust in Christ alone, and you are striving to do all kinds of other things to fill that God-shaped hole, my friend, you will be eternally disappointed. And here's the truth of the matter, that these thieves on either side of the Son of God that we looked at this morning, they both had different responses to the same Jesus. And you and I this morning are capable of having two very different responses to the same Jesus. Save me from this momentary hell. Carjack theology. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Apart from you, I'm nothing. I deserve what I'm getting. Grant me mercy. Grant me grace. And we step across that line of faith and we place our trust in Christ alone as our personal Savior, our eternal destination changes dramatically. That, my friends, is the story of Easter. No scary Easter bunny. No malted milk balls. No chocolate-covered peanut butter eggs. The story of Easter is that Christ arose victoriously from the grave. And as a result, your sin debt, the penalty has been paid. You simply need to go to the bank with the check and cash it. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the truth of Easter. God, I thank you that you loved us enough that you suffered and bled and died on a cross for our sins. That mercy came Mercy came running towards us because while we were yet sinners, you died. God, I'm so thankful for that. That gives me a reason to get up out of bed in the morning. It gives me the reason that in spite of anything else that happens in this world to all of us or to me personally, God, I know the end of the story. I know that eternity is secure because of your shed blood on a cross and your resurrection three days later. We celebrate that today, God, and we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.